Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one features Paul Staines, a.k.a. Guido Fawkes. Now, if you're a political obsessive like me, or even if you're slightly less obsessed, you'll have definitely been onto his website, orderorder.com. It is the number one political blogging site in the UK. It is number one for a number of reasons, mainly because of the gossip that's on there and the stories uh, that appear there first that, as as the interview shows, often end up in newspapers. So many of them are, are started there. It really is, as he says, the home of the Westminster soap opera. It started in 2004, and when it first started, there was mystique around it and around him. He protected his identity for a while. We talk about that in the interview when his, when his cover was blown on, on Newsnight. We discuss everything that you would want to discuss uh, with Paul. How does he get his stories? Does he ever not... Uh, publish any uh, the morality of running a, effectively a gossip site and in, and very interestingly the conundrum uh, of being a modern parent what if his children google him uh, and find out why he does um for those of you with a keen um knowledge of westminster insiderism we talk about the red rag uh debacle um which involved damien mcbride um and Derek draper that gets discussed here um, and we, I suppose, in a way, we cover, perhaps not explicitly, but Paul's journey to the sort of mainstream um, and a defence of that sort of blogging uh, and insight into it. An hour, as with all my guests, really, is just not enough. There are so many things. You know, you get the sense with Paul that he's sat on a vast mountain of stories. And he does give us one. Um, listen out for it. Uh, we, we talk about the value of the website and whether he'd ever consider selling it. There were talks to sell it to someone very important indeed, so do listen out for that. I mean, globally important, uh, certainly at one point. Uh, so it was very good of him to give us uh, that scoop. And listen out as well, crikey. If you subscribe to his uh, newsletter, as I do, uh, and he knows your email address, then he knows what stories you look at. So that is, uh, that is um, a warning for all of us. Um, but it's brilliant. He's a, a fascinating person to sit down opposite and, and listen to. Uh, and he was great. You know, it didn't feel like anything was out of bounds, as with all my guests. Um, and he gave us a real peek into that world. And, and the main thing, really, you take away from it is just how fun it all sounds. Uh, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow Paul, uh, well, his website, at least, on Twitter, at Guido Fawkes. Uh, if you've never been on it before, you are in for uh, quite a treat. And you can follow me on Twitter. Get lots of emails to the email address, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for them all. Um, one question I do ask is, is where you listen. So far, only people in exotic 
locations are telling me where they listen. Um, in a way, it's funnier when it is just <laughs> sat on a bus in the pouring rain. So don't feel as if there only has to be the exotic locations. But Mike Cooper says he l- enjoys listening to the podcast while walking through the canyons around Los Alamos, New Mexico. And Lawrence Newman listens in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. I mean, w- when you sat in Britain at a time of year like this and it's freezing cold, it feels like they're rubbing their noses in it a bit. I should try and get sponsored by Thompson Holidays or something like that. Other holiday companies are available. Um, but yes, here we are. Paul Staines, a.k.a. Guido, be prepared for an hour of fascinating insight. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Paul, you're someone who has had more impact in the area in which you exist, probably than anyone else. You're arguably the most influential political blogger in the UK. And a blog site that is specific in tone. There's nothing else quite like it out there. There are opinion sites out there, but none of them do exactly what Guido Fawkes does. And I don't think any of them strike fear into the heart of politicians in the way that you do. What was it that made you want to set up the site? And what sort of site did you want to create? I was uh, involved in litigation. It was going for two years. I couldn't work. I was a city boy and I was suing my backer. Never do that, by the way, because your backer tends to be richer than you and you run out of money. But aside from that, so I couldn't work in the finance, if you so to speak. And I was uh, posting to a site called Sam's Data, which is run by a guy called Perry de Havilland. And it was in those days blogging, this is like 2000-ish. It was all about the Gulf War, whichever Gulf War it was, I can't remember. And they would write these 3,000-word long essays and, you know, like a telegraph leader. And then there'd be another left-wing blog that would do a 3,000-word Guardian leader-style thing. And I would send in, email in these kind of short, snappy pieces, a bit more like a traditional diary column, yeah. you know, pieces and little uh, nugget-sized uh, pieces. And Perry would pretend he'd lost it in his spam filter because it was drunken or didn't really make sense. Or wasn't the kind of tone he wanted, the kind of broadsheet kind of tone he wanted. He said to me, why don't you do it yourself? And I went, oh, how do you do that? And he said, oh, try this blogger.com. It's free and Google and... So I went on that, and I just did everything wrong, and it all worked out right. So was that... Did you set it up originally as Guido Fawkes, or did you set it up as something else? Yeah, no, I set it up originally as Guido Fawkes. I think the URL was november the com, and um, uh, uh, the graphics were done on Microsoft Paint. Uh, and uh, I, I chose the name Guido Fawkes because I thought, what's the most strong brand name you can think of that's anti-political? Yeah. And uh, uh, Guy Fawkes and uh, Guido Fawkes. And I'd never heard of the Alan Moore books, which everyone always says, oh, did you get it from there? You know, and the, the anonymous mask. No, I'd yeah. never heard of them. And actually, later on, came to contact with Alan Moore and he said he's a fan. And wow. he's quite a different politics to me. I mean, you say you're anti-politics, but you, you'd been a member of the, the, the SDP and the, and the Tory party. For a while, you'd been pro-politics. Yeah, so I was, uh, well, in a strange way... <laughs> So I was very politically precocious, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but I never thought the Tories were cool. And so I was always a bit uh, uneasy about it. And I used to, I think when I was a teenager, I described myself as an anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. Which sounded much cooler. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think I settled down as a libertarian. And I'd say I'm a libertarian conservative now. But I, I'm very wary of politicians and political parties. Equally? No. I mean, it's no no surprise to say that I prefer the blue team to be in power <laughs> to than the red team. But, um, I, you know, I'm never completely happy with any of them. And I don't think many people are. 
No, I think that's true. I mean, I, when I first... I'm trying to... I racked my brains about when I first encountered orderorder.com when it, when it was first when on the scene. When you were spared, weren't you? I was working for the party. Uh-huh. Um, and that was when it came about. So it must have been maybe 2007, around that sort of period. Yeah, I'd say we were just starting to get traction. I was just starting to get traction then. Yeah. And it went around like wildfire. And what I do remember is people did try and set up rivals. There was one called Recess Monkey. Oh, by Alex Hill, who was a friend of mine and a business partner of mine. Yeah, so, but that, why did, why did yours prevail and his didn't? Um, because he didn't work very hard. <laughs> <laughs> he, was a, he is a very funny guy and he is truly a friend of mine nowadays still. Um, but he just didn't have the work ethic. And I uh, believed that it could be made to pay off. And I looked at Matt Drudge across the Atlantic. I thought, Matt Drudge is making a fortune. I can make this work. And I I also was very highly motivated in the sense that I did think not only was the government pretty shabby, I thought the opposition was pretty shabby as well. So I was kind of politically motivated, you know, and it wasn't really all about the money that motivated me to do it. If I wanted to make money, I'd go back into finance. So how do you make money off it? Just advertising or is there another well, way? Well, Alex Hilton came to me one day, as you mentioned here in the recess meeting, and said, we've got all these people in Parliament and whites will read in this. They're quite important. Why don't we sell advertising? And we went, to, and he had the idea for this, and we went around to see all the other blogs, Conservative, Home, Labour, whatever, you know, and all of them said, look, why don't we get round and set up a cooperative and sell advertising? And we had all these meetings, and, and nobody really wanted to do that return. They wanted to write their 3,000-word essays on their blogs yeah and i said to hilton let's do it and so we set up uh message space and uh alex god bless him i'm sure you won't mind me saying this still didn't have a good enough work ethic in my view (laughs) and after a couple of years of us making like no money um i bought him out for um a a, he needed money and i bought him out (laughs) and uh, now it's a little bit more uh lucrative so we sell advertising to uh uh, corporates who want to reach West, Westminster. Well, so why would you come on it? You'll see all these rubbishy Google ads that, you know, the same that you see everywhere else. But then you'll see ads from Heathrow or yes. from the defence companies or contractors and uh, the people who they're going to... I mean, say there's 100,000 reasons coming a day. They want to reach 5,000 of them who actually run the country. So, they're big clients. This isn't tin pot advertising. No, it's, it's uh, blue chip government contractors. So how many, when you first set it up to now, how many, you, how uh, do you measure it? Individual clicks, uh, individual I think, visits I think, a uh, day? Say, say 2005, it was about 60 a day and 50 of those were me pressing F5 to see if anyone <laughs> left a comment. And then uh, I'd say by about 2007, you read it, it was probably a few thousand a day. You know? Yeah. And I can remember someone saying to me, oh, you can never get more than 10,000 readers in the UK, you don't understand. Well, we have 10,000 hits by breakfast. You know? Wow. So... If we don't do 100,000 a day, I would be very annoyed with the team, <laughs> to say the least. And you know, so I think we're floating around 150,000 on a dull day. If there's news flow, it's very dependent on news flow. If there's action, a reshuffle, or somebody's in a ship for something, you know, it can go up to a third of a million a day. Wow. Yeah. So I had to pay for a lot more powerful servers. In terms of uh, the influence that it has, You've had, I suppose, that they live in fear of you, even Conservatives, because you, you do you do a fair bit of Tory bashing on there, even if you are... Well, we keep records, and we have caused more Tory politicians to resign than Labour politicians. Do, do you know the numbers off the top of your head? I think one year we did three MPs. Uh, wow. 
the, what was it Roughly Yayo and uh, Brooks Newmark all in the same year? Oh, of course, Brooks Newmark was the uh, Paisley Pajamas. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you had you had you had not so much allies, admirers in very senior. But I mean, David Cameron was was a fan of yours. Uh, yes, he he was a daily reader, and um, Spads would come and say to me that they had been in the meeting and said, I've got this idea, why don't we do this, and I've heard this, and he would say, yes, I saw that on Guido last night. And he wow. would do a thing on a Tuesday where he would get in the um, chief whip and they would talk about PMQs, and he'd flick through Guido, and say, let's do that. And I would get a phone call from a special advisor. I'm giving the game away here a bit. <laughs> a special advisor saying, we just want to check out some more details on this. Have you got anything on this? And like, I would say, well, what are you doing? He said, oh, David's thinking of doing something with her tomorrow. So then we would be basically writing the PMQ's attack lines. Wow. It was good fun. He was, and the game for them was, and Osborne, I suppose, was much more like that. It was like Theresa May and Corbyn aren't really in that kind of point-scoring, mm. debating society kind of game, are they? They're not. Would he ever ring you directly and thank no. you? no. So there was never any personal contact. No, I never any. I never deal with the principles like that because I, I just don't. I don't like it, and there's no. There's not really anything in it. I don't need to do interviews, right? Yeah. So I don't need to have a personal relationship with them. But is that a way of you keeping yourself pure in a way that you don't want to feel compromised? You don't want to make friends with people that you might have to do a story on. Yeah, I often say, you know, I didn't go into Westminster to make friends, and I've succeeded in that objective for sure. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think there's a couple of uh, politicians who I I would socialise, I'd have socialised with in the past, and um, I enjoy the company. But you know, then they're caught in bed, and it's really awkward. Nigel, did you really do it five times a night with this uh, Latvian uh, air hostess? Oh, go away! You know, it's it's not really. It doesn't really help that if your friend friendly turns them. No. Uh, I mean, at first, you, you tried to keep your identity secret. Was that part of building the brand? Well, as you, was that I think you alluded attempt? to, I had been in politics and I was uh, a very junior bag carrier and uh, I was working in political campaigns and think tanks in my early 20s. And I didn't want the baggage from that period to be associated with mm. the, the, the decade later me that was doing Guido Fawkes. In retrospect, that was a pretty stupid idea because you don't have any authority when you're anonymous. And I think there's a role for people who are in hostile regimes, you know, in Iran or Russia being anonymous or China. And, you know, or if you're a, if you're a whistleblower in the police service or civil service, they can be anonymous. But if you're going to uh, knock down politicians, you ought to be able to stand up and you yourself so i think that was a mistake did you fear because there's the, the infamous uh, appearance on Newsnight where it's paxman <laughs> hosting it and michael white and you appear silhouetted like a like somebody you know somebody who was at the time protecting our identity and michael uh, white blows your cover robbie gibb was the producer for that news all ah, right okay and i knew him from student politics i think i can say that now he's actually in a political position yeah. and not the token tory yeah. at the bbc and uh he tried to get me to go on Newsnight loads of times and he got me to do a video saying what a crap system the lobby system was. And he flattered me and said, oh, it's great, it's great. Well, why don't you do a two-way with... Uh, uh, we'll get Michael White on. You and him are always at it, aren't you? And Paxman will referee. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Said, okay, why don't we do you like a super grass criminal and we'll, we'll, we'll put a mask... You can wear a gear for... <laughs> so he kept on... And I fell for it. And, you know, 
I was going to ref- Paxman was going to referee. First thing Paxman said was, "Have a go at me," and I was like, "Oh God, why did they go to this?" So, yeah. It, everyone enjoyed it. I think it was uh, the first time I'd fallen flat on my face, and it was uh, much, much enjoyed by the lobby. But did you worry at that point that you'd compromise the brand or that the game was up? I thought it was a mistake. Uh, Camilla, who does Pop Bitch, Camilla Wright, who yes. does Pop Bitch, and uh, she's, we, me and her are old friends, and she told me in the beginning that um, you don't want to do publicity because you can never morally justify gossip it's always and you don't want to you don't want to go on tv anyway a month or so later i saw her on some panel on tv and i thought what the hell was that all about <laughs> but uh on the whole i don't i think foolish faces public places and if you put yourself um i don't want to be on question time and all those kind of things it's just, you've been approached yeah and uh, i kind of i find it a bit daunting i'd once had any questions yeah and got my dimblebees modelled up, and that went that went that went bad. <laughs> <a> euphemism. <laughs> it's just, you know. So, I found that quite daunting. And I just look, I don't have a book to sell, or, um, you know, I'm not canvassing for votes, so I don't need to do any of that stuff. You must get so many stories from people. Must w- willingly now submit you stuff. Yeah. Want so you to it's always been the case that uh, we've always made ourselves. Um, I've always made myself open. You know, I have. Still have a fax number. <laughs> if people don't know what a fax number is, Google it. Um, uh, always had the email address up there. And I think a lot of people... And also, there's a, there's a, there's a, used to be a bit more of a soap opera. You know, I'd report back from going to parties and drunken escapades. Mm. And uh, the, the, the character and me were kind of interchangeable. So people felt they knew me. Also, famous for Westminster people felt they knew me. And uh, they would call up and email in, which I don't think, you know, if, if you wanted to tell something to Private Eye and you're a junior researcher, who do you call? How do you yes. get to them? You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, with me, they, I think they feel, they've seen me around in the pub. Yeah. So they know. So what's your decision process on what to upload and what not to? Uh, well, it's very we won't upload, <laughs> I think. I think that's, that's reassuring. <laughs> that's good to know. Um, well, uh, is it true? Is the first decision. I mean, bear in mind, I'm told that people are gay, having an affair, cheating, uh, Lotharios. That's the same person I'm talking about, you know. (laughs) So uh, most people have five sex lies, according to some of the sources we have. After a while, you get an idea of what's likely to be true. You know, if it's a sort of pants-down story, I have a general idea at this time who all the shaggers are. Yeah. You know, it's just proving it. And, um, or, or... disproving it so those kind of stories are more difficult quite a lot of them i have to be honest don't appear on the website first they might appear in a sunday newspaper beforehand because what i learned very early on was after i did a few, broke a few of those stories on the website that all the newspapers then run it the next day yeah and um ring me up and say you could have given got some money for that so i uh, stopped doing it so quite often now we'll do uh do it with the newspaper so this is the Sun on Sunday that you've got? Oh, to... the Sun on Sunday. You know, I have a, a, a very open-minded relationship with most of Fleet Street. Yeah. And we'll do it with, you know, the highest bidder. Is that a sign that you're, in a way, becoming more legit? No, it's a sign that, um, you know, I have an expensive lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if I can make £10,000 for calling up Simon Walters at the Mail on Sunday, I will do. You know, it's quite simple. 
So in a way, are you, do you behave like a traditional political journalist that someone will bring you a story and then you try and stand it up, you'll contact the person that the yes, story's about? Yes, so we'll try and stand it up. Quite often if it's... Um, uh, well, the easy ones are photo stories. So someone will come in... The age of mobile phones. The Seamus Milne story, for yes. instance, of him uh, having a very close conversation with... Um, I've forgotten her name. Jennifer Robinson. The lawyer, Assange's it? lawyer, that's, that's it. Right. Blonde. Very out of a, a usual mistress uh, typecasting. Uh, that photo was a drunken reader of the blog at a par- at, in the bar saying, that's Seamus Milne. And, I mean, the, the more photos we had, you could tell he was hammered when he took the photos. Yeah. Because they're kind of... And him <laughs> trying to be discreet about it, like put his hand in front of it so you couldn't... Oh, so, but that is easy. So we just call up, you know, a contact and the photos are sold and great business. And... Um, you know, kits out the wine cellar. Do you ever have victims? Isn't the right word. The subjects of these stories get in touch with you and say you've ruined my marriage or you've ruined my career. Uh, in the heat of it, they don't say that. In the heat of it, they usually lie and say it isn't me. I didn't do it. But years later, I will bump into them, and I have—I can never be a politician. I've got a terrible memory for faces and names. Yeah. And they'll say, "You don't remember me, do you?" Or they'll say. Do you remember me? And I'll go, no. <laughs> and they'll then they'll explain how I ruined their life. And you know, they have they quite often they have done wrong. I mean, uh, a year after uh, Brooks Newmark, for instance, I found myself on a panel in Annabelle's for some reason, yeah. talking about politics, and we never mentioned it. And we went to dinner afterwards, and it's like eight of us after the panel discussion, and he never mentioned the fact that you know we'd knocked out his career and forced him to resign. But that had that that had not featured in the panel discussion, or it had, and he chose no, not to it ignore all, it. No, it's all very awkward. When it, when um, apparently the person organised it didn't realise, and it was it, they knew them from you know foreign affairs, Brooks from foreign affairs, and his wife says to him, "You can't have those two. And he apparently called me and said, uh, "If you want to pull out, that's fine." And I said, "I'm not bothered, but he's not bothered." And he said the same. So we were just perfectly civil. And not awkward at all? There was no hint? Well, as soon as you had a few drinks, I'm fine, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about him. <laughs> Do you have to be careful if you're going into Parliament or, you know, around the Red Lion or the St Stephen's Tavern or any of the areas around? Do you have to be careful that you put yourself I know, I haven't had uh, any pints thrown over me for quite a while. I was a bit worried about going to Liverpool for Labour Conference. Yeah. You know, I thought that might be a little bit uh, more fruity. <laughs> So whenever there was trouble, I just point out to my mate. He works for the Sun and wander <laughs> off. <laughs> but do you, so when was the last time you had a pint thrown over you? Ah, uh, I think that was probably more than five years. Do you take that as a sort of badge of honour, or is it intimidating when it happens? I just think it goes with the territory. You know, you dish it out. People, it's usually someone um, junior who'll do it. You know, it's not. Stella Creasy has a very odd relationship with me. She's always very testy with me and on the verge of, looks like, for me lunging at me and grabbing my throat, but she hasn't done it so far. Okay, but that's good. (laughs) Um, Do you ever get any threats yourself? Do people ever try and take revenge? Uh, A death threat, not more than one a week, I'd say. Uh, Usually, uh, uh, you know, the people who threaten you via email, I think, aren't going to do it. Yeah. Only once had, and this is when I, I still lived in London, or my family lived in London, and we had one uh, 
a guy with a machete turned up on the doorstep. <sighs> it's kind of... Oh, kind of, God. So I did call the police that time, and uh, he was pretty much thrown up against the wall, and, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> he was dealt with quite quite severely. And was that someone that you knew, or was that just a reader of the blog, or what? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> My <laughs> word, that's scary. But uh, it's, that's the only time someone's physically... I'm very careful about where where I live. And if you're listening, uh, would-be assassin, I live in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> and I just come over to London Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But that, that's, that's the only time. That's the only time I've called the police. I just don't worry about it. But it didn't make you think, maybe I should stop doing this? Uh, no. My wife is very, very, very uncomfortable about that whole thing. She's, she's like, don't bring it back on your doorstep. Which is a bit awkward when I left next door to Emily Thornbury. <laughs> Does she... It, 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 what are the concerns your wife has? Just the, the repercussions or just the nature of the work anyway? She thinks, for some reason, I don't know why, she thinks that I bring on the trouble on upon myself <laughs> unnecessarily. Um, I remember uh, when... Probably one of the best stories we ever did was uh, Smeargate, um, Damon McBride and Absolutely. all that. She, she she was picking me up uh, in the car and sort of like children were quite young and there was sort of nappy boxes, nappies flying around and we were going off to Asda to bolt by more nappies probably. And she had, the penny had dropped what was going on and she was like, these are powerful people. They run Downing Street. Why are we doing this? And I was like, well, this is kind of what I do. You know, and I was really enjoying it. She's like, this could be causing us a lot of trouble. <laughs> anyway, so she's got a um, normal motherly uh, uh defensive attitude and she's always worried that I'm going to run towards the sound of gunfire. <laughs> um, t- there's a lot of moral hypocrisy around websites and gossip or however... Nobody's perfect. However you would call it, absolutely. And the popularity of the site proves that whilst people may have issues with some of the stuff that's on there, everyone enjoys reading it. Do you ever think, oh, God, maybe I've gone too far or, uh, you know, the, the gossip in itself is... Um, not immoral, but perhaps morally challenging way to make a living. It's bloody lucrative, though. <laughs> uh, as I said at the very beginning of this conversation, Camilla of Popbit said, "Never try to morally justify it." I think there are. Also, if I am going to get my high horse, and when I write for the broadsheets occasion, I will explain it in this way. I think a politician who lies to his wife will lie to the voters more readily. And uh, that is my experience. And I think that pe- normal people understand it, which is why politicians don't like to be caught, you know, being adulterous. This is an important part of a functioning democracy to have websites like yours that can expose hypocrisy and as, as um, Boris said at our 10 year anniversary party, we're the dung heap that fertilizes, the, I can't even remember what he said, <laughs> you know, the rose bed of democracy or something. I saw the clip of him there. I mean, is is he someone that you talk about people with reputations and private lives? Um, you must get offered a lot of stories about Boris. I think I know most of them, <laughs> including the ones we're injuncted to mention. <laughs> Can we even mention the injunction? I can't even remember. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, two-thirds of them are true in Boris's case. Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the red rag experience was was explosive. For for a number of reasons. First, it, it appeared to go to the heart of Downing Street. Secondly, it was born of a desire, apparently, on behalf of Damien McBride and Derek Draper and those those that were involved, to set up a left wing rival to 
to Guido. Before we get into the specifics of what happened with Red, Red Rag, do you think it is easier to do sites like this from the right? Um, I don't know, because I've never tried to do it from the left, but I, I remember when the Tories were in opposition, people saying, oh, it's easy for you, you're insurgent, you're in opposition. And now they say, oh, it's easy for you, the Tories are in government. So uh, it's, not even, it's not easy. I mean, there are left-wing sites that try and do it. I think there's a new one, the latest in a long line of them, Red Raw. Yes, I've seen that. Yes, it's, it's called a Blairite version of, uh, of Guido, isn't it? So, it doesn't feel quite right somehow. You know, <laughs> it, it feels almost as if... And not, I don't. The corporate any... designer's been t- charged to do it. You know, <laughs> I, I imagine Tony Blair plotting. Yes, we need, we need our version one of these. Get me a PR man and get me a corporate graphic designer in. You know, and they, they're trying to do it. It doesn't feel. It feels like there's a committee of you Blairites sending it... in articles after you do it. In a way, on websites like Squawkbox and the Canary. Even though they're very different, aren't See, they? Squawkbox, I think, has energy. It reminds me of the sort of raw anger that, you know, perhaps motivated Guido earlier in its career. You know, in its, in its, it, he's clearly angry about things and it comes through. He's just got a lack of editorial judgment, you know. So that's his problem. Is that something that you think he could learn, though, and, and improve? I think you the difference between uh, the reason... Uh, people left the centre read Guido is because they know that we'll go after the story more yeah. than we'll try and uh, politically sign it. Obviously, w- our worldview is, you know, low taxes and freedom are good and high taxes and socialism is bad, but it doesn't get us in the way of the story of taking the piss out of Matt Hancock. Whereas <laughs> I don't think... I think there is something lacking on those uh, those sites where they just don't do that. I wonder if, and this is purely a devil's advocate, uh, purely for the indulgence of considering it, are people on the right, uh, and maybe in the and and in the libertarian sphere, less likely to less likely to worry about offending people? Oh, for perhaps, sure. Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, comfortable liberal. I mean, I don't. I, I, I'm not a kind of PC gone mad, Richard Lawton type, uh, but. I do not understand all the identity politics stuff at all. And uh, every now and then, uh, my younger colleagues will say, you can't say that. What do you mean you can't say that? Everyone goes there, don't they? So I read today that a Labour MP is having to go to a race and awareness, racial awareness course for describing his idea of going to a Chinese restaurant. Oh, this is the Scottish Labour MP. Yeah, yeah. now I, I, I'm not even going to go there, but I, I didn't realise that was such a bad word that you can't say it. So, so when you, just just in terms of what you talk about your colleagues, how many people are employed in the Guido So, uh, uh, Alex Wickham's worked with me for about five years, and he is the news editor, and he probably writes most of the site, and he's a very good journalist, much more serious type than me. I worry that he wants to go write for the Telegraph or the Times or something. Because... Well, he does some bits for the Spectator. Oh, he does. That, he does. It? He does do uh, highbrow stuff. And, <laughs> anyway, doesn't pay that well, but he does it. You know, likes to keep his arm. In. <laughs> and Ross Kempsell, who um, uh, is the most overeducated of us, double English we call him because he got double English first from Cambridge, <laughs> and uh, he came in on an interesting route. He uh, wrote to me and said, uh, as a lot of people do, I'd like to really interested in politics and he, he was working for one of those um showbiz sort of agencies that does all those kind of uh 
David Beckham stories and, you know, footballers' wives and stuff like that. And he'd done that for a year or two. And he said, I really want to do politics. And I, what I do with those kind of people is I, I give them a phone interview and got on the phone and I said, oh, okay, so you, you, you've got a passion for politics, as they all say. I said, um, who's the shadow home secretary? He went, uh, uh, okay, let's do it a bit easier. Who's the home secretary? Uh, uh. So your passion for politics doesn't go to knowing their names, does yeah. it? So he says, no. I said, well, you know, come back with a story. A year later, he is the guy who recorded Paul Mason um, telling that in Spanish guy. Yeah, he'd, he'd gone up on his own spec with the kit that he usually uses to tape re, uh, footballers' wives. And just by luck, and truly just by luck. I mean, I know Paul Mason thinks it's some kind of conspiracy from the sun, but... He was just by luck in that restaurant, trying to get into the Momentum rally, but he couldn't get in, so he went there for lunch and saw Paul Mason in the corner and put his iPhone on and recorded it. And then he called me up after that splash in the sun and said, now what? I said, you better come down. And the Paul Mason story was him describing, was it the, the removal so of Corbyn has Corbyn has no... Uh, uh, traction with the white working class or something isn't it you know and the next guy we've got to look at is clive lewis he's the coming man so that that, the reason that enrages paul mason so much is because it put him in the bad books but at a time if you remember paul mason and owen jones had lost faith in corbyn hadn't they well there was there was a big there was certainly a change of opinion around that time uh that then changed back but that's absolutely right and i remember the story uh in terms of how you've been portrayed in terms of your politics, libertarianism isn't something that really fits onto the political scale in the minds of a lot of British people. They I seek. think it just means, in my case, likes to do drugs and low taxes. <laughs> <laughs> because you're involved in the acid house movement. Yeah, well, the reason I, I featured all those, you know, 10 years, the Channel 4 kind of look back on 10 years of acid house or 25 years of acid house, I think we must be up to 35 years. Yeah. The reason I appear in all those is one, I like to annoy everyone, because that fascist bastard right-wing, why is he on the idiot? And also, um, the reason that all the researchers called me up is because I wrote it up. And, you know, I just wrote up a few sort of essays, if you like, about the whole scene. And that's why I feature in the history of it a lot more than other people, you know. But you were involved as a promoter at the time. Yeah, so uh, the biggest one, I think, was Sunrise, which... My friend Tony Colson Hater ran, and when he was getting in all the trouble with the tabloids, the only person he knew and didn't know anything about politics and dealing with the press was me. So he called me in, and I sort of fell out of. I was doing a lot of foreign affairs kind of campaigning and lobbying, fell out of that and more into Acid House. In terms of libertarianism, it's something that often UKIP types will use as a badge. Do you think they've given that sort of politics a bad name? Well, originally. Uh, Nigel dis- described himself as a libertarian, didn't he? Yeah. And he was. And I think it only it changed when they decided to marry the issue. They realised that if they married immigration to Europe, it was a winning formula, a populist formula. Mm. I can remember Nigel being much more uh, free market liberal on things than he was, say, five, ten years ago. Because when people have described you as a fascist and far right, is, does that offend you? Yeah, I think it's ridiculous, you know. Um, the caricature of me is, you know, a lot of... Well, it just doesn't make sense. Anyone who knows me knows I'm not like that, you know. Um, and I sometimes, unfortunately, I do play up to it sometimes, you know. Pinish your head, nice uniform kind of thing. 
and uh, a lot of throwaway lines I've said to be funny, which I'll probably have done something in the last half hour, uh, come back to haunt me immensely. You know, sometimes I read all these tweets that come in when I've got when I'm not logged in. And, you know, I was, uh, the things I've done when I was 19 are amazing. You know, gun running for the Contras and whatnot. It's just a little bit over the top. In terms of where politics is now and your influence in it, how far, how close do you feel to, for want of a better phrase, the alt-right and Breitbart and things like that? Because in tone, there are similarities between what Guido's done and what Breitbart's done, if not perhaps the, the political direction. You There's a punk you, element you, to it. You don't... So Milo, I knew when he was... A high Tory Catholic, yeah, you know, and he was kind of that. Uh, Raheem, I can I've known him since he was a teenager. Raheem Kassam, I can remember when he was a liberal conservative, you know. So everyone moved around over that. I think the Breitbart dead end for for politics. I mean, they're just trading on the anger over issues. Uh, I'm not, would say we're not there. We don't we don't actually ever write about immigration. You know, we stay away from those kind of... I said to you, I don't even do identity politics because I think it gives the wrong vibe out. Is that the wrong vibe in what regard that it's toxic? Yeah, I think I think it's pretty unpleasant, you know. And I, we have an ongoing war with our own comments. You know, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you venture into the badlands that are yeah. comments on any busy uh, right-of-centre blog, or website, rather... You know, from the Daily Mail to the Telegraph. I think the Telegraph have got rid of them now, haven't they? I think they have, yeah. Their website's very different now. Um, so we have algorithms that check for words. So I, I've learned 5,000 different words for Muslim, you know. The slang I've never even heard of. But you have to programme that yourself. Yes, we, 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 over the years we have a very long list of words you can't use. And then they'll switch to Cyrillic script or something. And, you know, so it's got harder and harder. So we basically ban a lot of people. And there's a whole website of people who've been banned by us uh, saying how rubbish we are. And it's not, not Breitbart, but it's like... <laughs> how, how hard is it to, to moderate comments on the website? If you're going to allow comments... You'll have on to ask Ross, because the, it's always the newest guys in. I haven't moderated comments for years, but it's kind of... It's an alternative reality, you know, where... Um, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. There's an irony, isn't there, that you're making, you know, your website that for many people pushes the boundaries of free speech. Is there are limits to it in your world as well? I'm interested because I'm kind of intrigued that you think that we sound like Breitbart because I think we don't. Well, I, I meant more in the sense of, of the attitude that there's a punk element to it, that it doesn't behave in the way that the traditional right does, that there's a, there's a rebellious nature to it. Uh yeah, I mean, it's, yes, there's a rebellious nature to both sides, but they think there's a conspiracy against everyone on immigration and stuff like that, and uh, I, I don't buy into that, no. you know. So the only time I think we've uh, done a policy-type view on immigration was backing Boris's amnesty for uh, undocumented in London. Do you feel that sometimes... Maybe, I mean, you, you know, your views on politics are clear, but that you should perhaps polish your liberal views a bit more and and appeal to, you know, if you're, if you're sort of more I think, moderate I think on I should just be my, I think I should just be myself. Yeah. But um, we don't tend to uh, preach about uh, policy too much. You know, there's a general, might argue, we like covering things from think tanks and, you know, saying, ah, oh, have you seen this? And yeah. 
this proves that and arguing about Brexit impact assessments. But we don't generally, we're not the Fabians, you know, we don't no. tell you you should think this. There's a, there's a slight irony that, and you're absolutely right to want to expose hypocrisy and things like that, and, and in a way slightly anti-politics, but you must absolutely love it as well. Like it's, it gives you so much fun. I think uh, I think I love it less than I used to enjoy the chase, and I'm not so frontline now. So is that because of effectively becoming exhausted by it and jaded, or is it because of the way that politics has gone? So I left politics in the tw- in, in my twenties because I thought John Major was boring and rubbish. I'm slightly less interested in politics right now because possibly I think Theresa May is boring and rubbish. Um, and also, you know, the goals of my political my political goals when I was 20 years old were um, end of Soviet communism, bring down the wall, uh, end of uh, socialism, a threat to British society, and uh, getting us out of Europe. Well, the socialism has obviously come back as a threat, which I didn't realise, but two out of three is not bad. Maybe I I was 50 last year, maybe I should retire. But it's... There there must be within you somewhere a a sort of respect for it and, and love of it. I had lunch with someone today who, who's a disaffected Blairite. And, uh, There's a few he, around. Yeah. He, we can't get out of it. Once it's in your blood, <laughs> you, you are infected. You know, it's, it's a chess game with people, isn't it? Yeah. But that's, that's what a lot of normal civilians think about it, that we're all just playing a game. Well, there's, I think as long as you've got a sense of how the world should be or that you have a, a sense of guiding principles, I think it's okay to enjoy the game. That's what people worry about, that we enjoy the game. Oh, but it's thrilling, isn't it, to watch it? I mean, I, I, you know, I want, moral, I want politicians of good moral standing, competence above all, but the, the thrills and spills, you know, the jealousy and the, the acrimony is part of what makes it so thrilling, part of what makes life so thrilling. I mean, politics is just an extension of humanity in that regard. Yeah, I think I, the truth is I am a little bit bored of it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm bored with Brexit. A little bit, and um, you know, I want the Tories to get on and change leader, uh, and you know, let's start all-out war on Corbyn and get on with it. It's kind of we're in a kind of very every day's Groundhog Day in politics at the moment. Do politicians ever approach you for consultancy or advice? Have, have any politicians ever say, "Come and work for me, Paul, be my press guy"? No, <laughs> no it's I'm never surprised. Happened. Never happened. Um, people do ask me to help them out with political problems sometimes, but I'm I'm not a lobbyist, you know. And kind of, I have I have when somebody's, I have been able to uh, point out to ministers and stuff that this and that, and feel I've done some good sometimes, and uh, you know that's not anything that's good published, but it's not really what I'm about and I'm not going to start pretending I am No, the red rag that we alluded to earlier was it was a fascinating episode where it was born out of a desire really from Labour circles to have something to rival yours how did you find out about it? <laughs> so you want me to tell you the thing that everyone's asked me for years? Yes! <laughs> Cough my sources. Oh it was worth a try and explain whether, whether or not it was as everyone suspects well <laughs> I've just decided to do that. No, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. But obviously, it was a, it was a it was um, they brought it on themselves. Let's put it that way. I mean, uh, Damien 
McBride and uh, Derek Draper <coughs> really brought it on themselves. They were the... I, I think they've worked out how it all happened and they know. So just to, just to go back over it, they were working in Downing Street. Damien was the Gordon. was Gordon's uh, press guy. Derek Draper was running Labour list, but he was also involved in the Brown operation somewhere. Yeah, so he 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 was trying to ingratiate himself back in as usual, wasn't he? And he had taken on Labour list, which is a website that was to be the opposite of Conservative Home. You know, a sort of party aligned site that was going to be a community and discuss yeah. issues because they saw that bizarrely that. The, the the right was doing better online. They wanted to emulate all that, and they cracked a plan for a website called Yes, and they Red they, Rag. they they emailed themselves back and forth ideas for stories, and and Damien was writing the the prime minister's press secretary was writing smear stories, <laughs> and uh, he accused. Ian Dale. Now, if you know Ian, he's quite middle of the road. He's a you know, very gentle soul. And accused him, I think, of being racist. Then accused me of being racist. And somebody knew it was a stitch-up. And But did the website ever go live? No. So this was all That's why I was brewing. sat on it from February till, till April, because I was waiting for it to go live. And then it would be much better, in my view, if it had gone live. And I'd say, actually, this is a government... Uh, operation and it's a government black ops operation. Yeah. Instead, I had to do an email story. So they'd knocked around a few ideas. Were all of the stories they had completely factually incorrect? No, not in my view. So they had some that actually were. I don't know whether Cameron does have genital warts, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I had I had heard the story, um, and. Yeah. Uh, the stories about Nadine Dorries. Well, she sued. In fact, I know she sued because I delivered the writ to Damien McBride. Wow. <laughs> and she she got that one. Uh, you know, they were stories that people had heard and couldn't stand up. And they they thought that if they had this kind of anonymous site, they could get them out there. And, and effectively get their own back on. Yeah, I don't think them. it made any sense, to be honest. it was They were the government. The I, I, I think it was a born of anger. And the anger was that Guido legitimised the story such that the normal Tory press could then follow it up and it would get momentum, and they wanted to do the same on the other side. Um, but obviously someone close to them... Yeah, so I think like I think someone felt that it was unfair to call Ian Dale a racist and me a racist yeah. and said, do you know this? And we wow. went, no... And they showed me some of the emails, and I went, "Could I see any more?" <laughs> and that's where it went from. I mean, when you when you first see something like that, does any part of you worry? Do you think, "Oh my God!" You know, actually, if if people close to Downing Street are going to be involved in something like this and publish something that's going to call me a racist, that this could end my career or worse. I mean, I mean I'm I'm lucky. You can't get sacked, can I? <laughs> no, you but you, you, they could have waged war on you, perhaps. I mean, you they might did, have catastrophized. They did, they did wage war. You know, they they went to town. Damien, um, people around Gordon, uh, they tried to get the new statesmen to run stories. You know, they really were trying to take me out. I mean, I, I was convinced that, you know, my taxes were going to get investigated and I was going to have trouble. You know, I had weird things that would make me sound like a conspiracy theorist happen. You know, they really did do everything they could. 
So what sort of stuff did you get investigated and things like that? Uh, no. I, was, I, it, I don't want to sound like a serious theorist, no. but I did feel that uh, a little bit under pressure. Yeah. Crikey. And don't forget, at this time, Damien Green just had his doors kicked in. That's right, for, arrested in Parliament. You know, that's what my wife was worried about. If they would do that to an MP, what would they do to you? It was a... It, in the in the in the in the broad sweep of history, a lot of the details been forgotten uh, because politics has moved so fast since then. Certainly, you were no fan of Gordon Brown, and you would mercilessly mock him on the website. Was that I can't remember the exact chronology. Was was that partly in revenge at the way you'd been treated, or was that? I think I think it was because it? we went for him so ruthlessly and consistently. I mean, and did things that the normal press wouldn't do, and it became. So I'll give an example of something that normal. TV wouldn't do, even Channel 4 wouldn't do it. Gordon Brown picking his nose. Now, you might think this is a ridiculous little funny thing, right? Yeah. But Gordon Brown, absentmindedly, before the budget, sat on the front bench, starts picking his nose. Yeah. Sticks his finger right up his nose, picks his nose three times, and kind of beats on a bit and wipes it on the back of his tie. I remember it, yeah. Well, you didn't, you, you weren't going to see that on the BBC, were you? And we got the video. And this is before things went viral. Half a million people watched it. Wow. So it ends up on Have I Got News For You and stuff like that. So we were making things happen that were kind of pushing... what I think what the left has done to the right for years was being done back to them. They just didn't like it. Did you ever feel, you know, you would paint him off as a clown and things like that? Did you ever feel that, in effectively questioning his mental health, that perhaps that was too far? I don't think... I, I still do question his mental health. I mean, and I think we all know, anyone who's been around, knows that he has not been in a good place. And the books had come out, you know, and it turned out all the stuff about the TBGBs and him ranting and raging and throwing phones all turned out to be true. Um, uh, Andrew Marr asked him the same question, didn't he? So, you know, I wasn't the only one who'd heard those stories. When you think about how far the website's come and how influential it is and, and how it's made you into such a big figure, what do you think your greatest achievement is? I am proud of all the young journalists who've worked for me and seen them go on. Uh, you know, some of them probably don't want people to know that they worked for <laughs> me. <laughs> um, but, I mean, people who, who are happy to say, you know, Harry Cole is the... Westminster correspondent and will go on to great things and will probably follow the Boris Johnson uh, career path in the, yeah, in the Future end. Foreign Secretary. Yeah, no doubt. Because um, he can't add up, so he'll have to be Foreign <laughs> Secretary. Uh, Juliet Samuels, who's now the Telegraph's leading uh, columnist, she worked for me for two years. So I kind of get, I kind of get some joy about that. And that um, I've, I've germinated some, you know, staunch right-of-centre journalists and, you know... Uh, Christian May, well, Christian May didn't work for me, but was, you know, he's the editor of the City AM. I mean, these are all people I've known since they were quite in their teens. What's the future of the site? I mean, you, you were very much ahead of your time. What are the threats I'm going to stick either? to my knitting. I, I did entertain um, the idea of going to India and doing the whole thing again in India. And I'd spent a lot of time on that. And Why to India? People. Well, I speak the language. Yeah. Um, Indian politics is a very fascinating uh, juncture. Uh, you know, the country is a coming superpower. If if I could get a penny off every Indian, I'd be a very happy man. Yeah. And also, it's uh, got a whole load of corruption problems. I think it would work. Uh, my wife doesn't want to go, though, so I can't do it. I think that might turn out to be my biggest regret, not going.
Have you, if you looked at other countries, why not America? Everyone says that to me. And I don't need to go to America because it's well served by everybody else. <laughs> anyway, I will give you a scoop if you want. Oh, I'd love a scoop. Steve Bannon. So uh, after Trump got into the White House, Harry, Harry Cole called me and said, do you remember Steve Bannon? I said, that Steve Bannon, oh yeah. Do you remember the American who tried to buy us? What? That same guy. Because I remembered him as sort of an investment banking guy. So before Breitbart was set up over here, I think it was Raheem called me up and said, um, I want to buy Guido a few. Really? I'll give you 100000 Why would I do that? I took more out of it last year than that. If I had... About a week later, he calls it. I'll give you £250,000 for it. I was like, he sounds like he might actually have the money. So and I said, well, can I speak to the organ grinder rather than the monkey? <laughs> so he goes, okay, I'll arrange it. And this kind of, you know, sounded to me like an American investment banker type starts talking to me. You know. So I think, we, I think we got up to five million I asked him for. <sighs> it was r- real money. And um, he said he'd think about it. And I know subsequently I heard, you know, from people who worked there, that they thought about it. They, he thought his immediate resources was, let's counter off him four million. And then they decided that they could build their own site in the UK for less than four million. So they did. Would you have sold it for four? I don't know. Oh, you must have. I mean, my word, you'd have sold know. it for four, wouldn't you? I don't know. Well, then what would I do? Well, Retire. Four millions is not very much money to retire on. Oh, it is where I'm from. Crikey. Four million quid. Feet up for the rest of your life. When I was Move to when, India. When I was in my 30s um, I, and I worked in finance, I remember my net worth was a million quid. Wow. You know, and I called up this old girlfriend of mine and said, did it, worth a million. And she'd married off and she said, a million? I mean, you've got to get the kids through school. What, what can you get in London for a million? And all of a sudden, by the end of the conversation, I felt like, <laughs> she's right, isn't she? Wow. <laughs> a million kids isn't going to get you very far. Honestly, you know, you'll see when you have kids in school <laughs> fees. Four million won't get you very far. If I have kids, I'll send them to a state school. <laughs> I'm still a snivelling old lefty at heart, I'm afraid. Um, oh, four million. You'd have considered it for four, though, wouldn't you? That I would be very a... tempted, but, I mean... I, I, I kind of feel I've got another... I was 50 last year. I'll probably do this in another 10 years because I can't be anything better to do. And um, by that time, would it have been around 25 years? And have you ever considered... And I kind of know what the answer's going to be, but have you ever considered standing for Parliament? No. Not at any point? Not even in the, in, in the, in the throes of youth when you were exuberant about politics? I don't think I, I did. I mean, I did used to joke with... Um, uh, that I wanted a, uh, I wanted the same Irish baronessy that Osborne's got. You know, if, they, if I'm going to get a gong, if I ever get the negatives, the right negatives, then I'm going to want an Irish baronessy because the uh, the wife says that she's not going to accept for anything less. So, do you think they ever would? Can you uh, can you ever imagine a politician in the future <laughs> ennobling Paul Staines? No, I can't. I can't. Uh, when Toby Young, who I've known for twenty years, had his little problem just recently after it all settled down i called him and said i'm thinking of applying for this job at the office of uh, students he goes please do because after about a week i'll then be the second most reviled man in britain 
Do you, do you, um, I'm not fit for public office, am I? Let's be honest. You know, if I was public office, I'd have to take myself down. You know. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, do you do you worry about your reputation? I know my oldest daughter's just turning 13, 12, 13, and we live in Ireland. And I know that she, at some point, is going to Google Daddy's name. And she my, probably would have done one. My Wikipedia entry is written by my enemies. You know, it's kind of bonkers. And I think it'll be... I think it'll have, I'll have a lot of explaining to do. I've already explained to them that people on Twitter are horrible and that not everything everybody says is true. And uh, my kids read The Week Junior. Do you know that magazine? It's great. It's oh, no, a, The Week. I didn't know there was a junior there's version. There's a junior version of The Week. In fact, it's pretty handy. If you've missed out on the news, I just have a quick look through it, catch up on last week. Oh, oh. Boris Johnson's foreign secretary? <laughs> you know? And uh, they, so they have a sort of uh, vanilla interest in current affairs. And uh, they hate Donald Trump. And they always double check. They, Daddy, did, did you vote for Donald Trump? No, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. Did you get a vote? No. I was going to say. I'm not going to lie to the kids now, am I? And and they... uh, I remember when they knew I was backing Boris for mayor, my oldest daughter got obsessed with um, Boris becoming king of London. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, do you want to meet him? And she's like, no. It was kind of nicoetting fear of actually meeting Boris. I am am very concerned that they understand that daddy's not a baddie. Yes. If... I mean, there are certain things on your Wikipedia page that would would concern children reading them. How would you... Uh, if your children do ask you uncomfortable questions about things you've done, how would you how would you explain it? To my wife's distress, I always tell them the truth, which she's like, you didn't have to say that. Well, you know, so, well, I mean, I'm not sure what you're worried about on the Wikipedia page. I assume it would be drug-taking. Well, I hope it's going to put them off. If Daddy's done it, it must be naff, right? So, uh, I wonder with this this week, Junior, whether that, the week, Junior... Um, well, there's an option for, for Guido there. Is there a kind of junior Guido site you could set up? Is there an app? When I saw that Rush Limbaugh had written a children's Christmas book and it was top of the New York bestsellers list, I thought, my God, I could redo all the classic uh, fairy tales with a kind of conservative moral twist, couldn't I? <laughs> I mean, this is it. And I did seriously contemplate this after a few drinks. So, But then I realised, actually... All the fairy tales are already conservative moral tales, aren't they? So I can't really put my own twist on them. And I'd have to go down the David Williams route of making up stories. You could cynically do left-wing versions just to make money. <sighs> I could do, I suppose. Is that really... <laughs> I, find that, I, I find that hard. I'm not... A, you know, barristers are supposed to have that ability to make any argument. I'm not sure I could. Well, Paul, it has been... I mean, I could spend another... 100 hours with you uh, discussing the site and your your career and your uh, <coughs> your services to politics. I mean, do you feel do you feel in a way that you've done British politics a service? Um I think we've knocked out quite a few bad people. Uh we've ended the careers of people who shouldn't have been in politics. We've exposed a lot of skullduggery and wrongdoing and we've had a bit of fun on the way. Um and uh <laughs> you know, that's not been a bad achievement is it mostly for you about enjoying it and having fun with it rather than exposing wrongdoing uh i wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't fun but i do enjoy exposing wrongdoing if you see what i mean um but yeah it's if this i could do much more boring things and much more lucrative this is more fun
and I get invited to lots of places to meet interesting people and have a uh, seat at the at the first drafting of history, don't you? Well, it's it's a great website. I mean, whatever people's issues with it, it is one of a kind, and there is no other. There's no other website like it. I mean, do you, do you fear rivals? I see them come and go, um, but there's plenty of. For instance, on the on the right, obviously there's there's sort of a spectrum, isn't there? There's Spectator Coffee House, which is respectable and worthy, and um, it has a sense of humour, you know, of, of, of kind. Then there's someone like Westmonster, which is kind of UKP and speaks like that, you know. Um, and then there's Breitbart, which is if we're the Sun, then they're the Express. You know? <laughs> um, so there's a. I don't think the cake. Is uh, there's, there's a bit there's a big cake there, so it doesn't detract from um, us. I think we've got pretty much a lock on that Westminster soap opera gossip, mm. and that's why I don't want to get away from that. That's that's where I want to stay, because what I realised is it's addictive, and because it's updated ten times a day, and you get your tweet and the buzz and the phone, and you see it, and it says exclusive, you click, don't you? I know you click because yeah. I've watched you read our emails because <laughs> you're a subscriber and you open about a third of our emails and you like anti-Corbyn stories. Wow. <laughs> I checked wow. before I came, so uh, I can see what you're reading. That's scary. Uh, it's not scary. It's just data, isn't it? I think they're the things I'm just more likely to read. Yeah, but, I mean, I also know what all BBC journalists read because they all... Subscribe to. I shouldn't tell this now. They all think <laughs> <laughs> I'll change, they'll change their email address. To yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating, Paul. Thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure. Paul Staines, a.k.a. Guido Fawkes. What a brilliant guest. It was one of those ones where, on the way back home, I kept thinking of questions I should have asked. So I hope I covered most of the things that, that you'd have wanted me to have asked there. I think I got uh, all of my big questions out there. And he gave us a scoop as well. Steve Bannon, Trump's one-time head of strategy, wanted to buy the site for four million quid. I mean, I would... I would sell most things for four million quid. I don't think I've got anything worth that, so maybe that's the uh, the difference between Paul and I. But it was great, just a really straight, frank interview um, in every regard, uh, an insight into why he does it, uh, into the problems it causes personally for him and the risks associated with doing it. But you get with him as you get with... I think all people who are attracted to politics, whether it's as an advisor, as a politician, as a journalist, as a blogger if you would if you would make that distinction between journalism and, and what Paul does it's obviously a I, I count it as political journalism but there is that attraction to it there is that something else it's not just about the money uh, and of course for most politicians it's not and for most people in politics it's not but it, there is something else about it there is an addiction that politics creates um, that you just can't shake and I include myself in that there is just something about it that is endlessly fascinating in every regard. The ideas, the way it changes, the individuals. Um, and hopefully, um, well, I don't want to cause, <laughs> I don't want to start any addictions, but hopefully through this podcast, um, you, 
you get an insight into why so many different people join it in so many different ways and get so many different things out of it. Thank you for all your wonderful emails. Keep emailing me, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford, and follow Paul Staines, Guido, uh, at Guido Forks. Um, I should also say, I'm out on tour again in a couple of months, uh, so do come and see me live. Um, I'm at the Glasgow Stand on the 25th of March, I think that's a Sunday, and then at the Edinburgh Stand on the 27th of March, which is a Tuesday, and after that, on to Bristol, um, a week at the Soho Theatre in London, Banbury, Harpenden, Sale, Tiverton, Loughborough, Cheltenham, all the big places, Chippenham, Stockton, um, and, of course, the live political party shows. You can get tickets for all those shows on the website, mattford.com slash live. Um, Also, and I know... I'm saying this every week now, but if you could leave a review on iTunes, it really does help. Um, we have a lot of people who listen to the show, but if you could leave, if you could leave a review, it only takes a couple of seconds. Uh, if you could leave a review on iTunes, it does help other people find it and it helps spread the word. Um, if you could, as well, subscribe to the podcast and if you could share it widely, as widely as possible, on social media. If you're not on social media, you tell your mates about it and, and get them to subscribe just so that more people can find it. And... Um, Yes, I, I just hope you enjoy the shows. I, I have to, it's the highlight of my... <laughs> it's sad to say the highlight. I've won the highlights of my week, as well as making Unspun, which, by the way, is on every Sunday uh, at 10 o'clock and Dave, the TV show I do. Um, and we've got an extra large version on Wednesday nights as well, which, which has extra bits from the interview and, and extra jokes. Um, but that and this are just wonderful things to make. Just as someone who's obsessed by politics, and not necessarily in the ideological sense, just by the whole thing, it's great to be able to sit opposite people who have played such big parts in it and different roles in it um, and pick their brains. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for downloading it. Spread the word, and I'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.